Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Throughout the pandemic, nursing homes have been under more scrutiny as outbreaks were happening in these facilities that were understaffed and housed some of our most vulnerable citizens. In California, death and neglect was found inside a troubled nursing home chain called Renew Health. Their CEO applied to operate nine new facilities and was denied because of all the other violations at the other facilities she operated. But in a weird twist, she was still operating these very facilities because of licensing loopholes. For more on the flawed system that allows this to happen, we'll speak to LEU, investigative reporter at KPCC and LAS.com. Yeah, I think the pandemic really sort of shed light into conditions at nursing homes that were happening even way before the pandemic, as you were mentioning. I first started uh, looking into this company when I did a story over the summer about an outbreak at another facility in Los Angeles. Um, I had heard that management had changed earlier in the year and a company called Renew Health had been involved. And that story involved family members telling me that there was delayed testing at the facility and there were several deaths related to COVID-19. And so I started digging into this company a little bit more and found out that it was connected to at least 26 nursing homes across state as either owner, operator, management, or an administration. And we found out that last year, state health officials denied Renew's founder and CEO, Crystal Solorzano, licenses to take over nine existing nursing homes. State officials cited as serious violations at the chain's facilities, including alleged rape and substandard care, and even concerns about Solorzano's character. But we found out that due to what advocates call a, quote, completely exploited licensing process, Solorzano's businesses are still actually operating those nursing homes today. Yeah, I think that was one of the most kind of surprising things that we kind of learned from going through your piece. So let's talk about some of the track record, because I want to get into that licensing thing, but I want to set the stage for that first. Let's talk about some of these red flags that were popping up at these Renew nursing homes. There was a number of citations, a lot of infractions known as immediate jeopardies, which are just some of the worst things that you can do. They classify things that can cause or have caused death, harm to the patients, all that. So the track record for them was not very good. Over a three-year period beginning in February 2017, regulators documented 128 federal violations at These nursing homes, including more than a dozen in the category that you mentioned, immediate jeopardy, which is one of the most severe. One expert told us 128 violations. That's way off the curve. We also did some analysis that the facilities connected to this chain provide care for one in 50 of the state's nursing home residents, but they're responsible for nearly one in 10 immediate jeopardies in California since 2019. So that's some of the things that we found. I mean, I had mentioned there was that one incident of a certified nursing assistant accused of raping a 52-year-old patient. There was another facility where a patient with schizophrenia had gone missing for weeks. So these are some of the violations that state regulators had cited to this Crystal Solorzano, the Renews owner, about why they denied her those nine licenses. Yeah, and when it comes to the COVID, across the 26 facilities, nearly 200 people died from COVID. More than 1,300 had become 
infected. So it was tough. And there was a lot of stories, you know, focusing on the COVID thing where family members of patients and all were saying, well, we'd see staff people walking around without masks, without the proper PPE. You know, you spoke to a lot of people connected to these facilities and even workers there said the same thing for inspections and whatnot. They'd break out a bunch of PPE and then they'd lock it away in an office and wouldn't make it available, which just seems pretty ridiculous. We spoke to several former employees at a couple of these facilities. I think the incident that you mentioned, we spoke with a former housekeeper, Devon Green, and he later actually spoke to investigators about his experience at Orinda Care Center. It's a nursing home in the Bay Area. He told us that he would have to reuse PPE. He had a box that he would put his mask in and that he would have to bring it in day after day and said that also before inspectors had arrived, that the center had staged PPE throughout the facility. But investigators had found that there was a number of issues, including short staffing at the facility and that nursing home workers like Devon Green had said that there was a lack of PPE. Okay, so now that we've kind of set the stage about a lot of the problems at this particular uh, group of nursing homes owned by Crystal Sorlozano, talk to me a little bit about these nine nursing homes that she had applied to take over and kind of the way the rules are set up, because this is one of the most outlandish things, like as I mentioned, that, that I've heard. You know, you have to apply to take these over. You have to have your license. But in these cases, you can kind of operate these nursing homes on the license of the previous owner. You don't really have to have a license in place set up just yet. And this is the way she was able to take over these nursing homes. They denied her request. She's actually still operating those nursing homes. Despite that, the appeals process, which she you know, initiated, could take years to work itself out. So they denied her these, but she's still operating them. The California Department of Public Health explained it to us this way. It said that, you know, new owners, aspiring owners of nursing homes can enter management agreements with the previous owners while the new owner's license applications are still pending. So you can take over a nursing home facility without having gotten your own license by the California Department of Public Health first. And even if your license application is denied, which has happened in this case with Solarzano, you can continue running the nursing homes while your appeals process plays out. And sometimes that can take years. So, you know, the state has deemed an operator unfit uh, by denying a license to them, but you can still continue operating them while your appeals are processing. You know, in your reporting, you found out, you know, that a lot of the rejection rate is very low. I think it was only 5% that have been denied. And there wasn't uh, any applications that were denied between 2016 and 2019 until these nine from Solarzano. So those numbers kind of bear out that they found a lot of issues at the facilities that she was operating already. And then they also cast doubt a little bit on her character. As you mentioned earlier, there was this uh, issue where I guess she might've submitted some false documents with regards to some of her uh, credentials on all of this. And you mentioned you kind of got wind to the story about a lack of testing or withholding of testing for COVID on a social media. Solarzano was posting things that were casting doubt on vaccines and the nursing homes in California, at least, were some of the first places to be getting allotments of vaccine. But on the social media that she was posting, she was sharing just a lot of misinformation. Yeah, so the California Department of Public Health had charged that when Solarzano applied to be a nursing home administrator, she submitted a fraudulent college transcript. That's one of the reasons why they denied her the licenses to take over the facilities. And then in further in our reporting, we saw in her Instagram stories that in December, she had posted a series of 
posts that spread misinformation about the COVID vaccine. One post repeated the falsehood that the vaccine changes your DNA, which has been repeatedly debunked by medical experts. Another post said, quote, the COVID vaccine should be avoided at all costs. And she has about 11,000 followers. So she had shared a number of posts to her followers. And when we shared these social media posts with uh, Dr. Michael Wasserman, who's part of the California Vaccine Advisory Committee, he told us that it's unconscionable that someone who's in the leadership position in a nursing home or nursing home chain would do this. So as you said, I mean, nursing home residents were among the first to be able to get the vaccine when it was first okayed by the FDA. Yeah, I mean, it's been a quick rise for Crystal Solorzano and Renew Health Group and, you know, amassing these 26 facilities right now that they're responsible for. And, you know, we've kind of ca- talked to all this stuff. Obviously, this is the story that we're focusing on for right now. But, you know, it's just kind of the theme that we've kind of put forward. Nursing homes have been in the spotlight throughout this pandemic, and a lot of these problems have been highlighted on what's going on. So, you know, this story obviously, you know, highlights bad actors in the game, but also to talk about reforms. You know, there is some reform coming in Sacramento and on the California side, you know, something to do with this issue of these licensing, borrowing licenses. So tell us, you know, what kind of action is being taken there? There's a bill introduced in the state legislature this year that would really address this issue of being able to take over a nursing home before getting your license. So that it would ban that practice. It would require nursing home operators to get approval, to get a license first from the state to be able to start operating a nursing home. And then it would also ban this practice of, quote unquote, borrowing licenses from previous owners. That bill is currently in a committee, but we've been told by legislators that it's a two-year bill. So it'll be tabled until next year. Yeah, that's AB 1502. But uh, it only kind of makes sense that you would need those proper licensing to take over a facility, especially, as I mentioned, these are our most vulnerable uh, citizens here and things need to be on the up and up. These nursing homes have a history, unfortunately, of not always taking care of them. And, and you know, you, then you hear stories and actors like this and people kind of shake their head at it. So hopefully, you know, these stories highlight that. Hopefully the action gets taken and, you know, we'll see what happens on that front. Ellie, you investigative reporter for LAS and KPCC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, an update to the terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California in December of 2015. In the aftermath of that attack, an iPhone 5C was recovered that belonged to one of the shooters. And what kicked off after that was a fight between the DOJ and Apple to unlock that phone. Now, years later, we're finding out that the FBI turned to a little-known Australian firm, which used an exploit chain to finally get into that iPhone. For more on who helped and how this iPhone was finally unlocked, we'll speak to Reed Albergati, technology reporter at The Washington Post. For five years, people have kind of batted around ideas about who it might be. And there's been a couple of names in the, in the media a lot. But those rumors have been wrong. And the firm was actually called Azimuth Security, which is based in Australia, founded by a guy named Mark Dowd, who's a very well-known Australian cybersecurity expert, or you could call him a hacker. And the exploit, which actually unlocked that phone for the FBI, was written by another hacker who worked for Azimuth named David Wong. And um, he was also very well known in cybersecurity circles, especially for his work on iOS and jailbreaking phones. If you remember, 
you know, in the early days of the iPhone, people used to remove the software restrictions on their iPhones, which is called jailbreaking, to install unauthorized software on their iPhone. And he would work on those sorts of things. So both really brilliant people who, you know, well-known in, in the security world, but probably no one outside of that world has heard of them. They were behind this. You know, we go back to what was going on back then. You know, a lot of things just kind of kept furthering the story. We found out that the FBI ended up paying this company, Azimuth, $900,000 to do it. So a lot of money there. But as I mentioned also, the, the fight between the Department of Justice and Apple, you know, Apple was refusing to do this. And at the time, people were like, why wouldn't you help them? This is a terrorist's phone. We need this information. But they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to create this back door that could later be abused by whoever else. So that, that was kind of the moral fight, I guess you could say, that was going on at the time. That's right. And, you know, there was a court case. The FBI actually did get a court order forcing Apple to unlock the phone or help the FBI unlock the phone. And Apple apparently did have that capability at the time. So this case was on track to be a precedent-setting case, which who knows how it would have ended up. But a lot of people thought that the FBI did have a good argument here legally, maybe not policy-wise. I mean, there were lots of debate about whether this was good policy. But legally, they may have won and may have actually set a precedent where the FBI and other law enforcement agencies would be able to just force Apple to break into these phones whenever they had a warrant. So in a way, Azimuth really kind of saved Apple from this outcome because once the FBI was able to unlock the phone, they really had no choice but to go to the court and say, look, we have to withdraw this this plea because we've already unlocked the phone. So it kind of delayed it. And for the last five years, we haven't heard much about this debate. And I think that's in part because there are a lot of firms out there like Azimuth who are able to break into these phones without Apple's help. There's sort of this balance where if the FBI wants to do this for a criminal case, they need to get a warrant. And once they use one of these exploits that, you know, like you said, can cost a lot of money, that exploit it's more vulnerable to being discovered by Apple or, or other software companies that might patch it and then make that exploit useless to the FBI. So they have to use these exploits sparingly. So we kind of have this equilibrium now. Maybe equilibrium is a bad term, but we have a, we have a system of checks and balances yeah. that are sort of built in without having this built-in backdoor that the FBI had wanted. And in the end, it was a little anticlimactic. You know, they unlocked the phone. There was nothing of real significance in there. There was no other links to foreign terrorists or plots or anything like that. So it was a bust in that sense. But tell us a little bit about those exploits and how they actually did it, because they had to chain a few different exploits together. They ended up calling it Condor, which, uh, you know, it's a little code name for it. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, they deal in these little bugs in the iPhone and one bug does one thing, the other bug does something else. And you put them together and then you're able to get into the phone. So how did they actually do it? That's right. And you mentioned earlier that the phone had this restriction where if you type the passcode in more than 10 times, it would erase the phone. So what this hack actually does is disables the requirement to this feature that erases the phone after 10 passcode attempts and allows them to just brute force the password, just essentially guess the password. It was a four-digit password, so it didn't take very long using you know sophisticated computers to guess it. But the way it started was long before, I don't exactly know how long before, but 
Before the San Bernardino attacks, Mark Dowd, you know, the founder of Azimuth, had actually discovered this bug in Mozilla code. It was open source code that Apple was using to interface with external hardware devices. And he hadn't done much with it. But then after these attacks, the FBI was looking for this way to unlock the phone. And Azimuth had already been working with the FBI on other projects. So they said, you know, we're actually about and we have this we have this bug we're probably 90% of the way there to finding an exploit that will work on this phone why don't we try and david wong took that bug and figured out how to starting with bypassing that lightning port you know turning that bug into an exploit for the lightning port then sort of taking it the next level and escalating privileges with another exploit in the end there were three exploits that allowed azimuth full chain to essentially remove that password requirement. Then they went over and tested it at FBI headquarters and it worked. The FBI then did further testing on other phones to make sure that it, you know, it worked hundred percent of the time. And then they unlocked the terrorist phone and then went to the court and withdrew that court case. Interestingly, and this is also new information uh, in this article, pretty soon after like a month or two after the FBI unlocked the phone. Mozilla actually patched that bug and made that worthless. So the oh, FBI wow. paid a lot of money for this and didn't get to use it much. They were only able to use it the once. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, just uh, for frame of reference, you know, I, I live in California, very close to San Bernardino. You know, it's all Southern California right here for us. So this story was very close to home and we were, you know, all the local media out here was very much into the story and the conversation, the fight over opening that iPhone was so intense with people on both sides, you know, privacy advocates and then people just saying, hey, we need to stop terrorists at all costs. So it was just an interesting debate on that front. And up until this point, that's why it's significant. We didn't know who it was and we didn't know exactly how they did it, what the exploits were that they were able to get there. And the last thing, too, it's just the last bit of the story is that obviously, as you mentioned, Apple wants to know who these actors were, who were the people that finally broke their system there. And they came pretty close to finding out about it because they sued the company that was co-founded by one of these hackers that was involved in this. So they almost got there without, you know, having to go through all of this. That's right. That's right. Apple is suing the security research tool maker called Corellium. And uh, Corellium was co-founded by David Wong. Um, And Apple actually, after the San Bernardino unlock, actually tried to hire David. And then they tried to acquire Corellium. So it's really interesting how close Apple was to this the whole time and continues to be. And I think the reason for that is, I mean, one, it's the security research field is is kind of small when you get to these very high levels of white, I would call them white hat hackers, you know, good guy hackers who work with government. It's, It's kind of small. And Apple really likes to hire them because it helps Apple improve their own security. There are questions about, you know, why don't they catch these things? And the truth is, they can't. It's too big and complicated to fix every hole. Reed Albergati, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Oh, 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 o